All right, we are back. Let's uh, let's delve in the news, shall we? Uh, we talked a bit about the G8 summit setting a, a goal to have CO2 emissions by the year 2972. Uh, actually, no, they, they plan to move as quickly as the year 2050. What I like about this story is that another story kind of uh, stepped on its toes a little bit. Uh, the fact that an EPA former aide... Uh, says that his testimony to Congress on global warming was deliberately muzzled by Vice President Dick Cheney. Jason Burnett, a senior official with the EPA who resigned June 9th, charges that Cheney's office urged him to delete or water down testimony to Congress by top administration officials on the impacts of global warming. The former EPA official said in a letter to Barbara Boxer that the White House Council on Environmental Quality and Cheney's office wanted to cut any discussion of the human health impact of climate change from testimony to Congress last October by Julia Gerberding, head of the Center for Disease Control and Prevention, which, by the way, should have been left being called the Centers for Disease Control, since control does include prevention. But anyway, uh, Burnett said he checked with the scientist at the EPA and concluded that Gerberding's details about the threats were accurate, so he refused to tell the CDC to delete them. They were deleted anyway. White House Press Secretary Dana Perino said in October that the cuts were ordered because of doubts about the soundness of the science of Gerberding's planned testimony. But as noted by the article by Renee Schuf for McClatchy Papers, that uh, Gerberding's list of global warming dangers matched the findings in the 2007 Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change Reports. And the administration accepts the scientific consensus in those reports. My favorite comment about all this comes from Zachary Quale from the Chronicles Washington Bureau, who noted that uh, the new revelations put a damper on the announcement by the White House that President Bush had joined other world leaders at the Group of Eight Summit in Japan on Tuesday in a non-binding agreement to seek a goal of cutting carbon emissions in half by 2050. Apparently, the administration was looking forward to really heralding that as a major breakthrough. And by the way, those non-binding agreements, those things really do pan out, don't they? Uh, that's why when you, when you get a new cell phone, you don't get a contract. You get, you get a non-binding agreement, right? And, and speaking of that, now that July 1st has come and gone, and we're now supposed to use Bluetooth or other you know, methods of speaking on a cell phone in a car that leave your hands free, wow. I got a call earlier tonight uh, where someone on a Bluetooth is trying to talk to me on a Bluetooth, <laughs> and I, it was like turning communications back to the Marconi era. It was like, oh, I can, I can speak, I, can you speak up? I can hardly hear you. I'm hearing, <laughs> and of course, I, I would say one's attention thus tends to get a little bit diverted away from driving just the same, doesn't it? I suspect the phone companies have brought out all their crappy technology so that in about, about, about six months, they'll go, oh, at last we've got relief for you. Now you'll be able to hear on your new equipment. Available in stores at only $199. Anyway, back to, back to George Bush. <laughs> we like the current issue of the Humor Times, which reprinted the following from Andy Borowitz. On a day when Washington was abuzz with the news that former White House spokesperson Scott McClellan had published a tell-all memoir, President Bush offered his personal reasons for not reading it. I have no intention of reading Scott McClellan's book, Mr. Bush told reporters, because it's a book. The president added that he thought the chances of his someday reading Mr. McClellan's book were zero, adding, if I didn't read the Iraq study group's report, I really don't think I'm about to read Scott McClellan's little book. 
Anyway, meanwhile, the, 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 uh, the war in Iraq's going pretty well. Article by Ernesto Londano and Dan Egan in the Washington Post, Dateline Baghdad. Iraq's National Security Advisor said Tuesday that his government would not sign an agreement governing the future role of U.S. troops in Iraq unless it includes a timetable for their withdrawal. The statement was the strongest demand yet by a senior Iraqi official for the two governments to set specific dates for the departure of U.S. forces. Gotta say, this is a pretty gutsy mood move by Milwaukee al-Rubaya, particularly when he added that the military bases in Iraq must be under Iraqi control. Now, I, I don't know what he's thinking. I mean, what, that Iraq is actually a sovereign nation? That uh, the Iraqi authorities have the right to control Iraqi military bases? I mean, come on! Anyway, uh, this program has had very little good to say about, uh, about uh, the political fixer, James Baker. But, uh, you know, we do have to, you know, give credit where credit is due. And James Baker, former Secretary of State, has gotten together with former Secretary of State Warren Christopher to, uh, to try and change the laws of this country to allow Congress to have more of, of say in whether we go to war. In a report released earlier this week, the two Secretaries of State note that the current law governing the nation's war powers has failed to promote cooperation between the executive and legislative branches. The report said that the 1973 resolution should be repealed and replaced with legislation that would require the president to inform Congress of any plans to engage in, quote, significant armed conflict, unquote, or non-covert operations lasting longer than a week. In turn, Congress would act within 30 days, either approving or disapproving the action. I, I find this fascinating that James Baker, the man who more than anyone else in this country is responsible for the George W. Bush presidency, the guy who led the charge down in Florida to stop the vote count that would have made Al Gore president, is now examining the actions of the Bush-Cheney administration and, signing with, and siding with his uh, former nemesis, Warren Christopher, to say, gee, we need to get Congress a little more involved in this. Said James Baker, what we aim to do with this statute is to create a process that will encourage the two branches to cooperate and consult in a way that is both practical and true to the spirit of the Constitution. A new joint House and Senate committee would be established to review the president's justification for war. To do so, the committee would be granted access to highly classified information. So yeah, scrapping the current war powers law, well, <laughs> it wasn't being used anyway. We might as well toss it in the scrap heap. But for the record, uh, bravo, James Baker. Anyway, uh, much closer to home, the idiots are at it again. The uh, Golden Gate Bridge Commission is going to be hold, holding public hearings on July 22nd uh, about five possible designs for a suicide barrier. There were five designs presented in the San Francisco Chronicle uh, uh, yesterday, all of which are distinguished by the fact that they are amazingly ugly. Oh, oh and by the way, each design would cost an estimated 40 to $50 million, uh, for which they have no funding. Now, it does appear that each of these designs would stop people who are physically infirm from being able to jump off the Golden Gate Bridge. Actually, I do have to say, there is one design that's not hideously ugly. That one is a net system that sticks out at the bottom of the span. That one would require the person to have to jump twice. 
Anyway, dumb idea. If you get a chance, why don't you go down to the embassy suites uh, in San Rafael and see if you can uh, voice an opinion that uh, the money should be spent on something else. Oh, oh, and in other news related to the Golden Gate Bridge, it appears that directors are scheduled to consider a $1 toll increase, raising the cost of crossing the bridge to $6 for cash payers and $5 for fast-track users. Bridge officials are recommending the increase to close the projected budget gap of $91 million over the next five years. How can they have a budget gap? I mean, they've got to paint the thing. They've got to do a little maintenance here and there. Where are the costs involved with operating the Golden Gate Bridge, which has been up now since 1937? And my question is, if you fired the entire bridge board of directors and put that money toward bridge maintenance, would that be able to make the difference up? I suspect it would uh, would make a serious dent. All right, continuing along in the stupidity department, much closer to home. Loved the pictures in yesterday's Sacramento Bee about uh, the folks down at uh, Loaves and Fishes cooling off in the extreme heat. Loaves and Fishes, of course, is a way for a lot of people with vague, shapeless feelings of liberal guilt to feel good that something's being done for the, the needy. In this particular case. The photographs showed that uh, bottles of water were being passed out to the people down at Loaves and Fishes, and the director was putting bottles on one of the patrons' necks to cool her off. But an even better picture showed two people that were, quote, demonstrating that drinking cold water isn't the only way it can be used to ease the heat of a searing day. And yes, the photograph shows the two people using the donated cold bottles of drinking water as squirt guns on each other. And no, it's not an accident that you wind up at loaves and fishes. And if you've observed over the years, as, as I have, the effect that this wonderful organization has had on, uh, on commerce in the downtown Sacramento area, you just have to have some questions as to how much good ultimately it does. Yes, the needy in our society do need us to help them out. And I, and I say that speaking as one who spent most of his medical career, or at least a goodly portion of his medical career, treating the medically underserved community. But I see Loaves and Fishes as an enabling organization that promotes and nurtures bad behavior. This might be a good time to point out that the opinions you hear on this program in no way necessarily represent those of KDVS, UCD, or the regents of the University of California. All right, let's, let's review the fact that uh, something that's been noticed by quite a few people is the fact that in the middle of an election year, the war in Iraq seems to be disappearing from media coverage. According to the New York Times, network TV news coverage about the war has been scaled way back this year. Halfway into 2008, the three network evening newscasts have devoted 181 minutes to Iraq, compared to 1,157 minutes for all of 2007. So it appears to have been scaled back by three-fourths or more. It's prompted a cartoon by DeFreitas, uh, which re was reprinted in the Humor Times, showing a politician saying, After five years, it's high time we pulled out of Iraq. Shows a guy with a press pass in his, <laughs> his hat, Feet up on the desk, leaning back, saying, What are they talking about? We pulled out months ago. And uh, Kel Munger, writing in Frontlines in the Sacramento News and Review, noted that this past March, the News and Review st stuck to its Iraq War timeline. 
without going into its more annual review of all, this, all of these statistics. Said, uh, said Kell, the decision to go with less coverage was based at least in part on the feeling that our readers, like most Americans, had tired of hearing about the war. The latest issue of American Journalism Review confirms this impression and does it by referring to the Sacramento Bee. In Whatever Happened to Iraq, Sherry Ricciardi analyzed the changes in news coverage of the war in Iraq over the past year. The story prominently features a piece from last March by the Bee's public editor, Armando Acuna, in which he lamented the way in which his own paper had moved its coverage of the war to inside pages. Acuna found that Bee's coverage of Iraq had dropped by 70% in the first quarter of this year. But it's not just the Bee. Kelmunger concluded by, uh, by asking what remains to be seen is whether readers, including our own, will demand more coverage of the war. He shouldn't take a catastrophe or a scandal or even the news the war has cost the United States $700 billion to direct our attention to the longest-running war in American history. And by the way, bravo to the News and Review and bravo to the B for staying on that very topic. And uh, one, one final comment about uh, the war, etc. New Scientist magazine, citing a study done by some Scandinavians, note that... Um, that, uh, that it may be that we underestimate the number of casualties that have been suffered in various uh, recent conflicts. What I find curious about the reporting in New Scientist was the following. The researchers have already used this method to estimate those killed in the current Iraq conflict. Starting with eyewitness figures from Iraq, Obermeyer calculates that 184,000 people have died since the 2003 invasion. Interestingly, this is much less than the estimate of a controversial survey published in The Lancet, which put fatalities at 600,000 back in 2006. You know, this is sort of being reported as, well, see, it's, it's not so bad. Let's put this in perspective. Iraq has 16 million people, half the population of California. In the entire Vietnam War, America lost fewer than 60,000. So... A nation of half the size of California since 2003 has lost over three times as many people as we lost in the entire Vietnam War. And that's just, that's just the dead. It says nothing about all of the morbidity. And also the destroyed infrastructure, etc., etc. Now, the Lancet figures did seem astoundingly high, but I'm wondering if they really have established that, you know, that that is really out of the ballpark. I don't know. We'll return to this topic. And speaking of uh, military matters, there was an article in the Washington Post which uh, this correspondent found absolutely fascinating, the kind of thing you don't normally see uh, reported. Apparently some enterprising reporters had got their hands on some notes, written notes about a, a, a talk given by Robert Mugabe on the afternoon of March 30th when it was quite clear that he'd been beaten in his uh, election. Mugabe apparently got together with the leaders of Zimbabwe's state security apparatus, uh, that which has enforced his rule for 28 years, and noted that he lost uh, the previous day's presidential vote, and in a barely audible voice said he planned to give up power in a televised speech to the nation the next day. But Zimbabwe's military chief, General Konstantin Chiwengo, responded that the choice was not Mugabe's alone to make. There were two first-hand accounts of this meeting which noted that Chiwenga told Mugabe his military would keep control of the country to keep him in office. Alternatively, the, uh, the president could contest a runoff election, 
which would be directed in the field by senior army officers supervising a military-style campaign against the operation, which is exactly what happened. But uh, someone really did their homework on this. Apparently during an April 8th military planning meeting, according to these written notes, this plan for an election was given the codename CIBD. The acronym stood for Coercion, Intimidation, Beating, and Displacement. And indeed, by election day, more than 80 opposition supporters were dead, hundreds were missing, thousands were injured, and hundreds of thousands were homeless. Morgan Schwingerai, the opposition party's leader, dropped out of the contest and took refuge in the Dutch embassy. Oh, and that was the election he won. In the runoff, he just withdrew from the race because of all the murders taking place in Zimbabwe. Uh, this, this ruling clique in Zimbabwe has to go. It's a beautiful country. It, it has tremendous potential, but it's being run by a bunch of thugs. And here's an example where minimal military effort could affect meaningful regime change. But it appears in this case, Zimbabwe's two main trading partners, China and South Africa, are pretty much looking the other way. And the U.S. has no interest in being the world's policeman when the country you're going to police doesn't have any oil. Here's an article uh, about the military that I think should get your attention. According to a UK Ministry of Defense safety manual, uh, while we've always been led to believe that nuclear weapons are carefully designed not to go off by accident, but uh, this study showed that uh, the typical Trident nuclear missile, which, uh, by the way, contains three to six atomic warheads, and, of course, a U.S. submarine might carry up to 24 such missiles, these things might not be quite as safe as we thought. In fact, this study showed that 1,700 of these missiles have design flaws that could conceivably cause multiple warheads to explode one after the other in an effect known as popcorning. Said the article by Rob Edwards, the effects of a popcorning accident would be dire. <laughs> Duh! According to the manual, in the worst-case scenario... People a kilometer away would receive a radiation dose of 100 sieverts. That's 16 times what's lethal. And, and apparently it wouldn't take an atomic blast apparently set these things off popcorning. This might happen with uh, what was described as a firefight with direct gunshots. Anyway, I uh, hope you enjoy your next trip down to the Bay Area next to some of the naval stations. I think we need to close out uh, this segment with some happier news and... Luckily, we have one item here that's uh, worth mentioning. Apparently, the controversial move to shut out commercial and recreational fishing from vast areas of Australia's Great Barrier Reef has led to a rapid increase in fish populations. According to Gary Rus of the James Cook University in Townsville, Queensland, everyone's a little surprised. We've seen a consistent pattern of recovery of coral trout over an extraordinarily large area. In 2004, the Australian government rezoned the Great Barrier Reef Marine Park to create the world's largest network of marine no-take zones. Fishing was totally banned in a third of the park, which is well over 100,000 square kilometers, including parts of each of the 70 biologically distinct bioregions. And while this is very good news for the coral trout, uh, the article did mention that they're monitoring 160 fish species in total, but... So far, only numbers of coral trout have changed since rezoning. But still, uh, we'll take it. I'd like to be 
see in an octopus's garden in the shade. I'm Douglas Everett. This is Radio Parallax. Let's take a short break. Knows where we've been in his octopus's garden in the shade. I'd ask my friends to come and see. Warm below the storm in our little 